If you haven't joined us before, we've covered some intriguing topics from getting your products into international markets, how to create unique experiences relevant for the business you're in, or even how to navigate tight cash flow in a seasonal business or in these tough, challenging economic times. As always, you can catch up and listen to our monthly conversation on your favourite podcast station under our Chamber channel, Set the Month in Motion. Many of our previous conversations have focused on how we manage the external forces, create demand for our products and services and how we get our products to market. Today we're going to turn our eyes inward and actually look at the places where we work, the teams we create and look at how we deliver on our strategies right down to how we improve the atmosphere around the shared tea prep coffee machine. So in short, we'll be discussing how we create a positive workplace culture. The literature defines a workplace culture as the shared values, belief systems, attitudes, history and shared knowledge of a, an organisation. Or as a friend who is executive of a fast-growing startup may have described it to me recently with the words, I don't know about you, but I seem to find more and more of my day is spent buying cake and meeting the whims of my team to make sure they are comfortable so we have half a chance of actually getting some work done. Be it a need for regular cake, stand-up desks or complex reward and recognition programs, workplace culture is shaped to a degree by the individuals within it, be it their upbringing, their education, their social and cultural context, but also by the quest, the vision and the strategic direction of the organisation and its leaders. Intuitively, we all know workplace culture improves teamwork, lowers turnover, raises morale, and when all the cake eating and team building work is done, it translates to greater increases in productivity and efficiency. We've got an amazing panel of experts today, and I think for the first time, all in Fremantle-based businesses, which is um, a wonderful coup for us this morning. First uh, to my left is, is Mina Silk. Uh, Mina is a new member of the Chamber and is a senior HR professional with over two decades of experience in high-profile organisations such as Cochlear Limited, West Farmers and across many industries from telecommunications, manufacturing, dangerous goods, transport and even local government. Her extensive experience in employee engagement and business improvement functions have armed her with practical knowledge of ways in which businesses can build a highly engaged workforce. As a director of the HR department, Fremantle, Mina now applies her extensive corporate experience to prevent people problems in small business. She provides HR advice ranging from everyday matters to strategic HR for business growth. So Mina, you've seen a lot of different businesses over your career. Um, from your perspective, what are the elements that make a positive workplace culture and how do we identify some of the gaps and bridge them? Thanks, Denisha, and thank you everybody who's uh, come here early, nice and early this morning on a very hot morning. Um, so culture, so I think culture as Denisha defined before is simply the ways in which people interact with each other. And the three key building blocks to culture are at the top level, leader behavior. So how do our leaders behave in everyday routine circumstances? Um, are they setting the standards for the rest of the organization? The second pillar or the second um, important factor in uh, culture is whether or not an organization has got people goals. And by people goals, I don't mean goals for people. I mean, how are they, uh, do they have employee engagement measures and, and ways to improve? Are they thinking about how to reduce employee turnover and increase retention? Uh, are they thinking about growth pathways for their people and so on? Because intrinsically all these factors link with uh, improvements in sales, growth and any kind of organizational change. And the third pillar is an incredibly important one, uh, which I think again Denisha did touch upon, is the effectiveness of systems within an organization. Uh, and this is not about whether or not we've got brilliant new technology. This is more about how easy is it for people to perform their routine tasks on a daily basis. Uh, are there some people or some processes within the organization that have a reputation of being blockers? Because these are the things that create pain amongst individuals. And when people are in pain, they lash out. 
So to summarize the three pillars of organizational culture, leader behavior, people goals, people engagement goals, and finally, systems and processes. So I'll give you an example um, of an organization that I've worked with that very effectively turned its uh, culture around. So the problem that the organization identified was uh, highly inconsistent feedback from customers in relation to their sales team. Uh, very polarizing, either the customers loved the sales uh, managers or they hated them. And on deep diving, we found that um, the sales team had favorite customers who got product. And if the customer wasn't a favorite, they basically waited for product for a longer time. Started again finding out what was happening there and discovered the sales team basically said, well, we don't have enough product coming from manufacturing, so there's no consistency. So that's why we have to play favorites. Went back to manufacturing and said, let's find out what's happening. At the core of it, uh, we discovered that uh, the people who worked on the shop floor, pretty much manufacturing the product, had a very low sense of value. They didn't feel valued. They had no idea what broader organizational goals were or what, how they contributed. And um, that resulted in the numbers that they were able to produce on a daily basis. So, and this is what I'm talking about in terms of systems, to say, well, this is a systemic blockage. How did this get resolved? So what, what measures were taken to fix this problem? The first thing was to start identifying what are the issues that stop people on the shop floor from producing product and started de-bottlenecking that. The second pillar, how that was applied, so in terms of people goals, was there was only one simple motto or a goal that was provided to the organization, which was operator is the center of the universe, which meant that anything that an operator needed was absolute top priority and had to be resolved uh, over and above meetings or sales reports or any of the other activities that needed to take place. How leader behavior was complemented was that right from the top uh, senior management down to uh, middle management and, and team leader levels, the mandate was when an operator requires something, we stop work, we first go and help. And it was actually factually demonstrated. So there were meetings I've sat through where there's an operator who has a problem and the head of manufacturing pretty much said, okay, let's stop this. We'll come back to it later. Let's fix this problem first. Obviously resulted in chaos in the first few weeks, as you can imagine, and a lot of complaints from middle and um, senior management to say this is really disruptive, this is never going to work, and all of that. However, over a period of time, four weeks, eight weeks, 12 weeks down the track, the number of times that leaders were interrupted and called upon started reducing because what was happening, every time there's a problem or an, a requirement, it's getting fixed. The leaders have a better connection with people and have a much, much stronger understanding and of what's happening and what is really preventing change from taking place. So the result of this, 12 months down the track, double production, and then the focus goes back to the sales team. And sales team obviously uh, you know, increased sales goals and stopped, um, didn't have the reason that they first gave about you know, there's no product to sell, so I, I can't go to market. So absolute transformation of culture by putting simple steps in place, but having a strategic direction. A great example there, I think, of, you know, the entirety of an organisation and how culture, there can be pockets within organisations, but even in smaller organisations, I think, you know, we see so many of these really simple things play out that frustrate people, they become um, a challenge to work. Mark, who's second on our panel and business development manager for Friosh and Friosh, I love the line that at the end of the day, 
you're passionate about people finding their place in the world of work. And I think many of your example was really great about how people find their place in work. Um, but where they can wake up and feel good about going to work or if they're running a business that they simply love running their business. And I think all of us who have been in small business know that waking up each day and feeling the love is sometimes a little bit of a challenge. Um, so even generating workplace culture in a way that engages and makes us want to wake up and get into that work is so important. Um, Mark has a background in work and organisational psychology and has spent the last 15 years consulting to small local businesses as well as large global organisations, the private and public sector as well as non-for-profits. He says he knows that culture can break a business but with the right people in the right places, doing what they love, making good quality decisions, culture can lead to long-term success, growth and a payday which at the end of the day is why we're all in business, isn't it? Mark, um, Mina's example related to manufacturing. Um, a lot of the people in this room run small to medium-sized businesses. Um, you're currently within a, a professional service business that brings its own sets of challenges. Um, some would argue that it's hard to take a blanket approach across all of those different sized businesses, industries and sectors. But in your experience, what are some of the differences or similarities that you've seen? And I'm particularly interested in whether you believe it's easier or harder um, in the competitive professional services arena, such as the law firm context, where a lot of the time it's about billable hours and it's about competing with your own workmates in many ways to deliver on some of those things. Thanks, Tanisha. Um, I'm going to tackle that question and then probably um, refer uh, to quite a lot of what Mina said as well. Um, having worked across a lot of small, medium and large size organisations and also working with organisations in other countries as well, um, I, I think that you know fundamentally organisations and people are, are, are pretty similar. Um, I, I had a I'm just going to use an example. It just came to mind as Mina was talking. I was doing a seminar in um, in Malaysia a few years back, and um, one of the the guys said, "You know, we've got um, a lot of workers here because it was manufacturing, and they, you know, they come from local villages, and you know, some of those places are, you know, pretty." pretty poor, pretty dirty, but you know, they're low paid workers um, and you know, how do you expect us to motivate them the same way that we motivate the people that wear white shirts in the office? And you know, I said, look, I think people are effectively the same, it's just that we have different needs, you know, depending on where we, we come from in the world um, at different times of our, in our life. And, and some of those people that, that might be wearing those white shirts in your offices might, might have nice houses and nice, nice cars and they need a, a certain um, type of reward and recognition that, that helps them to get motivated. The people that live in those villages that, that work with you, some of those people might be quite happy if you give them a little bit of extra money so they can put a little bit more food on the table, but you know, maybe they, they have a, a, a simplistic lifestyle that they need, um, that they need lesser things. And, and so I don't, you know, I don't think that that's um, a bad analogy or um, reference point for, for where we are he here in Australia. I think we've got a lot of small, medium and large businesses where uh, we have people in that comprise our organisations that just have different needs and sometimes we, we try and take a, a blanket approach within our organisation to rewarding and recognising and motivating people but everybody wants something a little bit different and so um, yes yeah, so I'm working in a law firm at the moment and you know that that's quite interesting because you know lawyers have a certain type of education when they go to uni and they're, they're taught a lot of things and they're taught about where they sit in the world as well and I've worked with law firms for the last 15 years and, and there are some unique quirks uh, around legal services industry, but I'm doing one-on-ones with people. I'm doing one-on-ones with directors. I'm doing one-on-ones with lawyers um, and admin staff. And if I look at all the one-on-ones that I'm having, you know, fundamentally people want to come to work each day. They want to achieve something. They want to feel good about that achievement and they want to get a pat on the back when they've done a good job. And they want some sort of camaraderie and they, they want a collective achievement as well, you know, to differing degrees. If I then go to a government department that I've worked in or if I go to a not-for-profit that I've worked in, um, they're not that dissimilar. All right, so I think that you know, for, from an organisational culture perspective, you know, ultimately we need to have a direction for the organisation. Um, we we need to bring teams together. We need to understand what individuals want, and we need to find some way to, to find a balance in, in working with people and um, a, and helping them towards towards those goals. And there's there's a quote that I read some years back, and, and Mina made a comment before, and it just made me think about this comment. The, um, th this quote was something along the lines of um, your, your organisation's culture is going to be a function of the quality of conversations that people have there. And I 
you know, I guess having worked in this space for so long, I've just come to believe that that is probably one of the truest statements when it comes to organisational culture. And, you know, I was in a, a board meeting yesterday and there were some really, really good debates and disputes. And as you can imagine, I don't know if there's any lawyers in the room, but, you know, lawyers are trained to be um, uh, uh, oppositional. They're, they're trained to debate. They're just trying to dispute and hold their position. Um, but, you know, some of those conversations that we had yesterday, even though they were quite intense, um, were good quality conversations because they got to the outcomes that, w that we want. And I think that we, you know, if we can teach people to have really good conversations in workplaces, um, then the, the culture can end up being um, a lot better as a, as a result of that. So going back to the first question um, about blanket approaches, I, I, I think that we, we can um, make a lot of assumptions about humans and therefore we, we shouldn't take a law firm and go, a law firm is so completely different that we can't take any of those examples and use them in the, the context of a small retail environment. <laughs> Mina talked about systems before. You know, I, I probably in this space over the years, I've become more and more passionate about systems and processes and a lot of small retail businesses in particular, um, or small businesses in general, take a really long time to get their processes set up because it's seen as time consuming, it's seen as um, costly to actually set that stuff up. But I can assure you you're probably going to get more turnover if you don't get that stuff sorted up, sorted out in the first place because if people don't have a, a process to follow or a system to use, it lends itself to them making mistakes. And when they make the mistakes, they don't feel good about it. They can get in trouble for it and then all of a sudden it, it can create some, some problems. So that's a, a pretty simplistic comment about systems and processes. But I'm a firm believer that, that we need to sort that, that stuff out. Um, in terms of the visible um, stuff, and I'm going to go to what Denisha said earlier about cakes and that. You know, I've, I've used this term over the years about, I've called it the, the colourful beanbag effect. Um, and unfortunately, um, fortunately, unfortunately, I think there's a lot of trailblazers in the Silicon Valley. Um, a lot of organisations in the, in the tech industry have, have brought to light um, organisational culture, but very much on the um, superficial side of things. And, you know, you'd go into offices and all of a sudden you'd see um, all of these colourful beanbags being put in rooms and this is like our cool, wacky innovation space. And then you'd ask them, you know, are people actually using these spaces? And not really. Um, and going back to KL, I, uh, I was running a different seminar in KL and I, <laughs> you'd love this, I walked into this office and just as you walked around to the left, there was the bar. So all these bottles of spirits and, and all that sort of stuff. So if you wanted as a, as a client, you could go and have a, a drink at the bar. And over in that corner over there, there was the reception. There three or four people at reception. And over in that corner over there, they had this incredible room with this full-size pool table, jukebox, all this amazing stuff. And it was fantastic. And then they had this enormous concrete tunnel. And it was an innovation hub. So you could go in there and use these advanced computers. Anyway, I'm running this seminar and I said, I love your office, it's absolutely amazing. Who uses the pool table? Who uses the concrete tunnel? And one of the guys said, mate, you never see anybody using this stuff because if we are using that stuff, we're seen to have too much time on our hands and we get in trouble because we should be working. And I'm like, okay, that's... And that's the danger of the superficial stuff and that's why I call it the the coloured beanbag effect and, and you know the coloured beanbags and the foosball tables and stuff like that you know a lot of officers do that sort of stuff but we've just got to make sure that we know why we're doing it and that you know if we actually put these things in place that we actually encourage people to take a bit of time out because we know that when we pull people aside from work and they they can do that incidental team building and, and have a laugh together and have some fun together they're probably going to give back in spades and that's why you know I often say to companies don't do just your one day team building every year. Team building should be happening all the time. It just doesn't need to be overly complex and you don't need to always spend a fortune on it. Just make sure it's happening incidentally on a weekly basis. And you know, we've just moved office, we've moved into the Manning buildings. Our previous office space wasn't helping our culture in part because we were full and we ha didn't even have space to have lunch or have a team meeting. So we've had to move to a space now we, where we can actually get together. And you know, since we moved in in January, we've had two enormous lunches in the boardrooms um, and people have brought food. And you can just see the level of engagement going through the roof. And I sent an email out and said, we've got five rooms. We want to name them. Here's some ideas. And oh my God, 30, 40 emails in the trail. And I was thinking 12 months ago, we just wouldn't have got that. You would have been lucky if you'd got five people respond. And that's just the feeling of the environment. So I think environment is a, is a big factor. You just want to be thinking about it a little bit more critically than um, just that real superficial stuff that you might have seen elsewhere. Probably talking a little bit too long. But um, I'll hand back to Denise. You can ask questions. <laughs>
I think you make a great point, Mark, and I'll, I'll, I'll quote uh, the, one of the 12-year-old girls in our house. We forget sometimes that we're all humans and um, I think that's such an important part of creating positive workplace culture. Um, I met years ago with a lady that was interviewing and assessing um, people on for immigration, you know, detainees, people that had been in the most dire of circumstances. And she said the thing that fascinated her the most was nearly all of the conversations weren't about the situation they find themselves in. They were about so-and-so said such-and-such about me, I liked this lady and then they ran off with that person and, you know, we're all humans and that interaction with each other is what drives us and whether it's coming to work or it's coming to home, we want to feel we're in control of our decisions, that we are contributing in some way or form and that we're having great conversations um, because I think that is actually what um, for most of us, maybe except the non-humans and the <laughs> androids amongst us, that's what actually creates that positivity and generosity. And the, the, the quality conversations, I mean, people have often said to me over the years, you know, you're, you're in psychology and you're in organisational culture, it must be all the fluffy stuff. And as a co consultant, you know, one of the things that I'll tell you is that, you know, often the, the first two to three months of the engagement have often been quite brutal. And, and I haven't necessarily always been the most popular person going to an organisation because very quickly I would say, you know, I, I can see that there are a number of people that are really not good for your culture. And then if I ask the question, are they performing? The answer for the most part will be, for the most part, will be no, um, or they are performing at a high level to the detriment of others, all right? And so I've often said, you know, I, I think that we ne always need to give people the benefit of the doubt, but you need to be able to have uh, constant quality conversations with people to let them know if they're underperforming or if they're not contributing the way that they should to, to the organisation's culture. And, and so I've seen off a lot of people over the years in organisations, and I often connect with those people no, I reconnect with those people. I connect with them on LinkedIn and I'll ask them sometime later, how are you going in your new job or your new career? And more often than not, they'll, they'll come back to me and say, really, really happy. And, you know, that's, uh, I think, cultural fit sometimes goes two ways and that is that that person wasn't a fit for the organisation from the organisation's perspective, but it probably wasn't a good fit from their perspective either. So sometimes, you know, turnover is a good thing. I think that's absolutely right and back to Mina's point about leadership and strategy, you need to also know what you're in the business of and we've talked about that a lot through these podcasts is knowing your own business, knowing what you are in the business of and therefore what are the right people that come together to help deliver that because different businesses do require different cultures and, and different ways of being. Um, and it's a great segue um, into our, our third member of the panel um, and we're really going to um, ask Lauren I think some questions just about that ability to create those great conversations. Um, Lauren is Director of To and Fro Studio. Um, she takes a very practical approach to building internal and external alignment. Her expertise has been gained from many fields ranging from architecture, landscape architecture, graphic design, knowledge sharing and communications. Having spent her 15 year career honing her design skills to distill complex information into very clearly defined messages, Lauren has a particular knack for conveying ideas and sharing knowledge. In addition to her design communication work, Lauren teaches within the architecture and landscape architecture streams at UWA School of Design and she holds degrees in architecture from the Royal Melbourne Institute of Technology as well as environmental design from UWA. Lauren, a great combination there of both an understanding of the physical space that we've already mentioned and how that contributes to our well-being um, as well as those connections between us all and that the importance of sharing that message and, and creating that internal engagement. Um, what role do you believe the engagement and communication plays in creating positive internal workplace culture? So, yeah, I really do, uh, in addition to, as you say, um, spatial quality plays a really big part in um, how people are feeling in a workplace. I think internal and exter external communication also play a really big part in that. Um, and more than anything, it's about um, getting people, uh, to use an over overuse saying, getting people on the same page, but more than that, getting them part of the conversation, uh, getting them part of feeling like they're making the decisions that make up that message, um, not just telling them, hey, this is what we're doing now and this is the these, these are the things that you should say about us or this is the things that we say about us and therefore you should too, but rather coming together at 
at necessary and appropriate times and saying, okay, there's a new challenge or we're doing something different and we want to hear what you have to say about this different set of, set of scenarios or um, different set of challenges um, and making them like uh, authentically feel part of that process. Um, and then maybe taking it offline, going away and clarifying it or um, uh, refining it. Uh, and then taking it back uh, to them first, to the people that were involved in the first stages and giving them a chance to uh, weigh in again so that um, you show them that you're valuing their input from before, um, you're giving them a chance. And most often than not, they won't want to add anything more because they can see and they've felt um, authentically heard and it's just about checking in, getting them to say, yep, that's, that's a good representation uh, of all of our points of view and then being able to um, like rest assured that everyone's understanding what that new message is um, because they've been part of that process. Um, I'm not sure if I've answered the question, but... I think it's an interesting one, um, and particularly on the engagement front. Um, you know, we all work in incredibly busy businesses these days. You know, labour is at a point where we're almost at, at maximum, and, and being able to get the balance right between taking the space to stop and have those conversations we need to have and actually getting the work done in between our emails and our phone messages and all of those things. I think there is a balancing act to be done there and I think it's creating that space to enable those conversations to happen. But I think also having the leadership and the structure to be able to say this is the direction that the organisation is going in and understanding how you fit into that part and that process as well. Um, research by Deloitte has shown that 94% of executives and 88 percent of employees believe a distinct corporate culture is important to business success. I'm curious from the panel and, and maybe I'll start with you Lauren, how do we create and differentiate our own distinct corporate culture? Um, I think it's just coming down to two things which are like honesty and transparency um, internally and externally. Uh, not pretending to be anything that you're not and not trying to gloss over uh, anything with kind of um, can I swear on this? Bullshit language. Um, so, yeah, authenticity and transparency internally and externally. Yeah, so uh, I think that the example that I'm in at Free Show Lawyers at the moment is is a, a really, really good one and it was probably a little bit um, enlightening for me. I joined in April last year. Um, we've got five directors. One hails from Bosnia, two have Croatian heritage, one has Italian heritage uh, and one has English heritage and um, and we have a really like multicultural workforce and having worked with law firms for the last you know 15 years consulting to them you know I've probably picked up quite a lot of you know trends in law firms particularly if you go to the city or West Perth where they've got a lot more of that sort of corporate you know hardcore sort of corporate um, edge to them and now all of a sudden working with a law firm in Fremantle that has this real sort of European mix where you know the managing partner on Tuesday um, afternoons he'll, he'll throw everything and he'll go I've got to go to family dinner and you know I think that's a really really great example um, we, we have a really good work-life balance you know I've worked with a lot of law firms where people are in at seven sometimes earlier they're there till eight nine ten o'clock at night I've got a friend who was um, had a newborn, it was her second child, who was working for one of the big firms on the terrace and she had a, a dinner with a very important person at Crown um, and so she was there, her husband drove the baby to Crown, she walked out, breastfed the baby in the car, went back into the dinner because that's what was expected of her as a salary partner in that organisation. That would never happen where we are. So one of the things that I had to do when I started there in April last year was spend a bit of time trying to understand what that actually meant for the firm and it meant family first, it meant work-life balance, um, it also meant you know us understanding that we're a law firm so we've got to focus on that commercial side of things and I was going to say that earlier I think that a lot of um, a lot of businesses start to you know focus on a lot of other things but forget that you've got to make some money so you can do all these fun cool things but if you're not actually making money you can't pay people or you can't do nice things money gives you options, right? So we can do a lot of things fairly simplistically and fairly economically, but you know, if you've got a little bit more money in the bank, you can do some cool things as well. So we need to focus on on that commercial side of things. But you know, if you, you come into our offices, you generally won't pe see people there at seven o'clock. One of the directors likes to come in at that time because he goes to the gym in the morning. Um, in At 6 p.m., you'll hardly see anybody there. And I think that what we've been able to do is go, what do we understand about 
the, the, the people that make up the firm? What do we understand about the industry? And what do we understand about where we are? We're in Frio, right? So if we want to attract people, we, we want to be able to say, you can come to Fremantle and at lunchtime we have a one hour lunch break and we can walk to the beach. You know, so there's a lot of these things that um, we're, we're taking into account and now we go to market and we tell people these things and some people go, I want to be a commercial lawyer and I want to be on the terrace. And we go, cool, go with our blessings, but we're not the right place for you. And then we get other people that go, love what you've got there, I want to work with you. And all of a sudden, we get the right cultural fit. I was just going to ask actually just about flexibility, Mina, because you mentioned your journey was inspired by seeing so many friends and associates, you know, with different size businesses and budgets. And I think Mark just touched on that with the commerciality of it. If you're in a business that's struggling and it's not making money, it's very hard to find the time and the space to invest in creating positive culture when survival's almost on the line. Um, and I'd love to hear your recommendations about those that are beginning their journey or changing the, their own business cultures. Obviously, Mark's highlighted that creating an understanding of what the business is that you're in and who the people are and what you want to do. But what else would you advise for people that are starting on this journey with that approach to that flexibility and diversity? I've got a recent example of a business and this is uh, something I think some a lot of people in this room might identify with. So I'm working closely currently with a small retail business. Uh, there's only five employees. Uh, retail is struggling, as everybody knows. Um, and the, the owner of the business came to me for help and said, um, I'm in a lot of trouble. We're not selling much. Uh, and if we keep going like this in the next 12 months, I have no business. What can I do? And so I started looking into, you know, she, she, her idea of fixing the issue was we need to sell more. I said, yeah, fair enough, we need to sell more. Let's look at what you currently sell and how your team interacts. Five people in the team, they all have five very distinct jobs, as you can imagine. Um, I attended one of their sales meetings and it was icy cold. It was like I was sitting in Siberia. It was an hour-long meeting talking about numbers. None of the five people were interested or engaged and there was a lot of excuses and reasons why they couldn't do what they were required to do. A simple change that I suggested, I said, let's not have these hour-long sales meetings on a Friday afternoon. Let's have them first thing Monday morning, so that, so 8.30 Monday morning, 15 minute huddle, stand up meeting in front of a whiteboard, just quickly going through the plan for the week. Let's start with some energy. And just this simple change uh, has already started creating better conversations and people feel more valued and respected. So there's no uh, you know, list of excuses or reasons coming out. It's more solution focused. And it's not that those uh, reasons aren't valid, but it's just a different mindset of looking at the, re the uh, bottlenecks with more positivity and from a solution oriented perspective. Does that answer your question? It does. I had a great flashback um, to when I was at Woodside and we engaged on a very strong um, performance leadership change program and it was about bringing your whole self to work. So engineers technically not that good at bringing them, their whole selves to work, maybe fit in sometimes into the Android category I was mentioning earlier. Um, and it was all about breaking open and unravelling the onion layers. And um, it, it, to quote Mina's example, they decided they were going to change up team meetings and we had to start with what they called a clearing. So everyone would start the meeting with what had gone on in their lives before they'd arrived at the meeting. And <laughs> it was chaos. I can tell you, most of us don't need to know what's worrying everybody else at home. <laughs> we were having people talking about their cats, their dogs, their children. And in a way, we almost had to revert back to, as Mina said, these really quick, productive meetings that were somewhere in the middle. So somewhere that recognised humans were coming to a meeting and they had days and they had lives. And we didn't want to just all sit down and run through what everyone was doing for the week. They needed to have a purpose and they needed to have some structure. We did put an end to the clearings. Um, but yeah, it's a really interesting point that simple changes, even like meetings, have such an impact on how people feel in a workplace. And I've been in meetings where they've almost ended up 
really aggressive because they were in a format that was almost a circle where people were every day and people got quite territorial just even having the meeting in that space. So opening up where you're having your meetings, making sure they're in neutral territory, making sure they're structured on a regular basis can go a long way. Um, Mark, I, you've mentioned a couple of times different cultures and different ways of being and I, I likened your example around family work-life balance which is obviously a huge issue for, for all workplaces these days and I think gone are the days where we recognised that there is not, uh, I guess, a divide between work and home and that we can all manage to separate these cleanly and efficiently. Um, context and experiences, I guess, hold a mirror to our society and the example that you used about um, that employer crown, I think, is a great one. What other trends other than trying to, I guess, address more flexibility within our workplaces to accommodate the lives that we have and the real lives we have, what else are you seeing in terms of our workplaces and how we manage them and, and current trends within that? Yeah. Um, there's a, a couple of things. I mean, one of the things that sort of came up or came to mind as we were, we were talking before is, is um, transparency. And, and again, I think communication is a, is a really important thing. I think historically, you know, because of the hierarchies in workplaces, um, communication often has stopped at a certain level. I worked, incidentally, at another law firm a couple of years ago and, and I came in and, and asked the directors how things were going and they said, pretty tough. They you know, had a pretty pretty lean period and they, they had a decent-sized workforce and um, you know, they were really eating into um, uh, you know, pretty much their, you know, all of the loans that they had. Um, and they were getting a lot of requests. So one of the, the partners said to me, I think we've got this really entitled generation. They just want everything all the time. They're coming to me with these $5,000 training programs that they want to do. They want to do this and they want to do that. And I said, look, I said, I think we need to just slow down a little bit. Yeah, I, I get this whole concept of entitlement, but I think we, that we need to break down exactly what they need in the first place. Um, and so we did run a bit of a session with some of, some of these lawyers and um, <laughs> one of them turned around and said, look, they just need to spend a bit more money. That's what an overdraft's for. Um, the person was 26 um, and I was just, th I thought, wow, that was a, um, I don't know if it's courageous is the right word. I'll use a different word. I won't put it on this um, podcast. But, um, the, the comment was quite interesting. But so I had to work really, really hard with the directors to actually say, look, I'd, I'd like you to consider being a little bit more transparent about your financials and how things are actually going here. Um, and one of the directors who, you know, she's... Uh, probably late 60s, early 70s, has been in law for a very, very long time. She said, that's just not how you do it in law. We've never done that in law. We never give this information away. And I said, I think times are changing and I think you need to be open to that. Now, she's one of the most favourite people I've ever worked with. So, And she's also probably one of the most open-minded to, to suggestions. Um, and so they did. And they started to, um, to share information with their people, which gave context to... The, the workplace situation and it gave people a little bit more of an appreciation of where things were at. So all of a sudden you get a little bit more extra discretionary effort from people because they're going, hey, we're part of this team, we're part of this community and we want to actually put back a little bit so we can get a bit more money through the door. So as I said earlier, money gives you options. If you're eating into your overdraft to that point, you've got no money, right? So, you know, and they, they had a bit of a turnaround and I think that, you know, there were a number of reasons for their turnaround, but I think that transparency was really, really important. It's probably not a new thing if you read some of Cotter's stuff from years and years ago in his change management textbooks, you know, communicate, communicate, communicate and communicate some more. Um, and, you know, I try as, as hard as possible and I don't always get it right. I'll be really, really honest. And I'm honest with people about that because, you know, I think that, you know, previous to me coming into to Free Show Lawyers, um, with the managing partner, did a lot of the stuff himself and did all the client work. Um, we had a, um, a finance person. We hired a finance um, an administration manager. So now we have two people in senior management positions and we never had that before. And one of the ladies said to me after a few months, she said, we know what's going on now. We never knew what was going on before. And I don't want to blame anybody for that. They just didn't have people to do that communication. Um, and one of them had actually said to me, you know, sometimes we felt like we weren't being communicated to. We knew things were going on in the background and it makes you a bit suspicious. And I said, please don't blame anybody for that. It's just that people were so busy they didn't have the opportunity to communicate. So I think that that openness and honesty, uh, and I, I'm, I'm not giving you flashy, superficial trends here, I'm just telling you what is happening in organisations that are making them better, and I think that when we go back to the example of retail, maybe share with people, like if you're in retail, share with people and say, look, you know, it is a tougher time at the moment. Um, there was a, a really great um, session that we had here 
probably October maybe, um, which was about customer experience. Um, I've got a mate at the moment that wants to start a business and I keep saying to him, I don't think that's the customer experience that people want. I said, you've got to maybe speak to some other people in hospitality, but I think that you've got an idea of something you want to sell to people, but I don't think they want to buy that. If you're in an industry, if you're in retail and you're trying to sell things to people that they don't want to buy anymore, that's a that was a completely different session. But, um, you know, your, your team can't really control that. You can control your culture. And I think that transparency, openness and getting feedback from people to say, you know, do you think that what we're selling is the right, right thing right now? Or do you have different ideas, get them invested in it? And I think that idea of... Um being honest and transparent, I think, is a trend that is reflected in our society. You know, social media, the way young people are communicating with each other, it's on tap, it's all the time. They're constantly connected. And that's very, I think, difficult, particularly for, you know, an older generation like myself, where we were very focused on getting our jobs done. And that's what we were rewarded for. Um, and so the thought of leaving getting your job done to have a chat to someone is unfamiliar, but I don't think our world allows for that as much anymore. That's right. I've actually got um, an example of an amazing business I've recently um, been working with. It's a dance studio, uh, a small business. Um, the owner, she's got about 20 employees. The age range of employees is between 16 and 75. But the amazing, absolutely brilliant thing about this business is she loves her product so much and the identity, product identity is so clear, 80% of her employees are former students. Absolutely brilliant. And how she's managed to cut through the, uh, you know, the different age barriers. So she's got 16 to 20 year olds uh, teaching dance just as effectively as the 35 year olds and the 75 year old. So it's just an example of saying that that identity of product is incredibly important. And if you and it, it's also really important to actually push that identity through to your employees in a consistent and authentic way, because they're not two different things. The moment you see a disparity between the two problems arise. I think it's such a good point, um, Nina, and the idea of authenticity um, in brand as well as authenticity in your vision and your quest. Um, and I think I keep using the word quest because I, I think that's actually really important. We're not just taking our customers on a journey, we're actually taking our employees on that journey unless there's a sense of I need to seek and I need to find and I need to continue to learn and grow but I understand what my quest is, I think um, it's a really challenging way um, to run a business without that sort of identity and leadership. Um, Lauren, I'm going to ask you um, another question um, that relates a little bit to that quest and the brand story itself and your experience both within communications and within architecture. Physical space, visual messaging, the cues that we need the reminders when we're not just talking face to face about how space and those visual cues provide a reminder for what our workplace culture is. Um, thanks. That's a, um Different space. I mean, the different workspaces that people have uh, as their places of business can make a massive difference to how people behave in those places, how they perform, how they feel, um, and it definitely should be a high consideration for business um, decision makers when they're thinking about their staff working within them. Um, but equally, the way that the company visually represents themselves. Um, in their external facing communi uh, communications, but also internal. That's um, a re repeated point that I will always make. Internal, external communication, they're highly related and often they should be quite very similar, if not the same. Um, I've lost the thread of the question though. Um, they're both both important um, and I think that from an identity point of view, um, you know, the way people feel about their space that they work in, whether they feel pride in it in addition to whether they feel comfortable in it, um, the two things are uh, as important as each other. So it can often feel like a, a big spend, you know, if a business is looking to um, like renovate their space or enter into a new space, um, it, it, is, it is a big bit of money that can be spent in, in that world, but it is 
highly important and it can really come back in, in spades. I think it's sometimes that feeling of value in space as well, isn't it? And, and to work well and to feel good in our workplaces, we need to be able to work efficiently and sometimes our spaces limit that, um, whether it's through lack of natural light, whether it's through lack of fresh air. Um, if we want people to feel comfortable and harmonious within an environment, we need to create an environment that is comfortable and harmonious. And I think we do often underestimate the physical space and also our external brand in terms of colour, in terms of vision, um, needs to reflect the authenticity um, as we've just been talking about. I feel the panel has talked way too long and I'm so sorry, I do this every time. I'd love to open up to the floor. Um, if anyone's got any questions, if you can just raise your hand and Kel will give you a mic and um, put it to the panel. Hi, I'm interested in the idea of introducing diversity into a workplace. I think it's important, but I also think it's difficult, well, on the face of it, perhaps difficult to accommodate in the smaller business because you're almost taking quite a significant risk in staff and I, I wouldn't want to be guilty of employing the same people so you perpetuate the same kind of smaller vision of things. So I think the opportunity to take on diversity is great, but the actuality of it I see is a little bit of a risk. So I was just wondering if you had any comments on that. I think, um, Mina, from a structural HR perspective, I mean, diversity is on everybody's lips and inclusivity, but it, it does require some different ways and different ways of thinking. Great point there. Um, and I think the the, the question of diversity, uh, irrespective of size of business, is a really important one. Even in large businesses, I've seen that uh, having diversity goals is fantastic, but they need to be balanced with business readiness. Because diversity just on its own is quite a disruptor. You know, it, And it's a great concept and it has long-term benefits, but you need to go back to the systems part of it as well to see are we ready for it? and have we prepared ourselves enough for it. In my experience in small business though, um, I've had uh, very, very interesting uh, interactions with small businesses where I think in a lot of ways, small businesses have already sold on, on the concept of diversity. It doesn't have to be done as something separate from your the way that you function. Because small businesses tend to be more on point in regards to what their requirements are and who are the people who are going to fulfill these requirements and how am I going to get a constant uh, loyal workforce in coming years? So the, um, the, some of the prejudices that we hear about in the media and we, we experience through life in general don't always translate in small business in the same way. Uh, because of this shortage of good people um, they kind of automatically lend themselves to greater diversity. So um, I, I would strongly recommend don't beat yourself up if you don't see diversity in your business because if you really deep dive, it, it might already be happening. And I think also, as you mentioned, Mina, sometimes in smaller, medium-sized businesses, we create better networks and better social ties because the, the proximity and the closeness of our daily working life means that a lot of that prejudice does get broken down in a very real way and quite quickly um, once someone is within the workplace and understands the goals and everyone sort of understands their roles in workplaces. And I think in larger organisations where you have long historical context and connections, the barriers to changing some of that history and changing those stories becomes incredibly entrenched. And I think, you know, gender and resources is a great example of that. Does that answer the question, Sal? Great. Uh, anyone else? Martin. Yeah, how do we identify if we've got a gap in our organisation? I mean, you're normally you're working every day in the business and you, you may not see what's what's going on in the culture. How do you actually work it out? It's a really good question and I guess without an independent like Mark coming around and asking the questions, you've got to look out for yourself, don't you Mark? I might put that question to you. Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, ultimately this comes back down to, to asking the people, the people are going to tell you. And, you know, I've had, I've had so many instances over the years where, uh, oh, I one, one example was a local government, um, it was over in Adelaide probably about 12, 13 years ago and I remember the HR manager came to me and said, look, I think it's time that we do a cultural survey and I said, cool, we can help you out. Um, and she said, look, you know, can you give us a quote? And I've got to pitch it to the executive. Pitched it to the executive. The CEO turned around to her and said, we're not ready to get people's feedback. <laughs> right? But you know what? 
that's actually not unusual. I've had you know, iterations of that so many times over the years where people say, we don't want to give people an opportunity to give us feedback because it gives them power. You know, it, or, it, or we don't know if we've got the time and the money to spend on fixing the problems that they're going to tell us about. So rather than getting the feedback and just sitting down and actually having a look at what you can do, they just don't get the feedback. Um, so I, you know, doing blanket surveys sometimes works, sometimes doesn't work. And, you know, we've, we've had so many mixed models and it really depends on the organisation and, you know, the, the nature of how people communicate. If people are already openly communicating with each other, maybe we can just run some small focus groups and get people's honest feedback take that back to the executive, maybe the executive are part of it if there's openness already. Actually, but, um, the, the statistic that you gave earlier, was it Deloitte's? 90, it's interesting because there was a, a model that I was using for years from Human Synergistics, um, which is a sort of a cultural survey provider, and there was a, a great model of um, cultural maturity and sophistication, and it was based on does, does the executive believe that there is a direct link between um, culture and business performance um, and then it was about organisational readiness and all of the decisions that you would make around what you do as, as part of organisational culture would be determined by their level of understanding of how much culture has an impact on performance. So you'll see organisations that are not only doing great things and um, for the people inside, but you know maybe they're um, heavily involved in external charities and, and stuff like that, and you, you know that they realise that the more that they do, the more it has an impact on on culture, whereas you know some organisations are just purely based on let's get the work done and let's make a lot of money out of it, and they don't care about the people. So I think that going back to this point before, yeah, you need to understand the level of sort of maturity and sophistication of, of, of your business um, to make sure whether it's 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 actually ready to, to go down that diversity path. But I think diversity is really important. Um, if it comes back to you, I'll come again. Um, I think also that point of again humans. You sense, Martin, I think so often when things aren't right, when people walk into a room and everyone goes quiet, when there's hush whispers around a coffee table and no one's talking, when people won't look at each other in the eye, you know, there's some really, really simple visual cues. And if we just go back to the three pillars and do a self-assessment, say, what are my leader behaviours? What am I seeing from the leadership, uh, particularly in times of conflict or disagreement? Do we have clearly aligned people goals with business goals? And are the systems working? Wh who are the people, the customers, the suppliers that you're talking about constantly? Look at these, you know, that cohort of people and you'll get a lot of feedback and answers through that. Any other questions from the floor? One more and then we'll have to wind up, yeah. Just a very quick observation. In my 35 odd years of working as a mediator and facilitator with small business, most small businesses start off with somebody with the passion and it's your dream. So when you employ people, just invite them to be part of your dream. Don't just invite them to work for you. People invite you to be part of what you're doing. And that does make a hell of a difference. I think that's a wonderful comment and probably a great place yeah, to, uh, to wind up today's conversation, you know, we do start businesses with a vision and with a quest and with a dream and we just need to take people on that journey with us. So thank you all very, very much. Please stay for some tea, some coffee if you can. Our panel are obviously still here and very willing to chat to uh, any of you if you've got further questions. So thanks again, everyone.